Um, so this morning, uh, we're going to go to our, our memory verse we've been working on. <coughs> Excuse me, sorry. Um, through, uh, through this whole this series, we've been working through Ephesians over the summer. Uh, and the, the passage we're going to look at today actually has uh, this, uh, this passage in it. This will be the very end of our, our passage this morning. So let's say this together. Be kind to each other, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God, through Christ, has forgiven you. So three things. Be kind, be tender-hearted, forgive one another, and you do that because Christ has forgiven you. Amen? One more time, let's say, be kind to each other, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God, through Christ, has forgiven you, Ephesians 4, uh, 32. So um, there's some things I, I know about following Christ, and what, what we're going to kind of talk about today, this is what I know about that. Being a follower of Jesus is a lifelong journey of change and growth. Amen. It's change and growth, and it's a lifelong process. It begins, you know, when you first become a follower of Jesus, and then you go for the rest of your life continuing to grow. God continues to call you to, to, to grow and to become more like him and, and, and to change. And I know we don't like change, but I am here to tell you change is a part of life. Amen? Okay? I mean, even whether you want it or, or, or not, you know, as you get older, things change. Anyone want to say amen right there? Okay, you know, your body changes, how you do things change, your mind changes. In some ways, it's better. I mean, I'm much wiser. I've learned a lot of lessons that, that I didn't have at, at 25 that I have now at this stage in life. But at 25, I could walk into a room and remember why I had walked into the room, right? Things change. It's just the, it's the essence of the, it's the whole thing. And so it is. Paul is going to talk to us today about this kind of this change, some of this change process uh, in our life. I, I wish that when we became followers of Jesus, God just zapped those things out of our life, you know, zap and, and, and you're not angry anymore, or zap and the bad attitude is gone, or, or zap and all the fear is gone out of your life. But it just doesn't work like that. Okay, there's a process for us. And so um, Paul kind of has been laying out a theological foundation, and as Joni told you last week, now we're going to get real practical for a while. Um, and so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Ephesians 4, 17 through uh, 32. Um, and, and I need to tell you, because some of this passage is kind of rough, because Ephesus was a very wicked place. There was all kinds of craziness uh, involved in Ephesus, major metropolitan area, all kinds of different gods that had different ways of worshiping them, uh, that sort of thing. So he's going to describe, first he's going to describe their life before they became a follower of Jesus. And then he's going to talk about some of the things that after a follower of Jesus were, they're still kind of, kind of working on. And then at the very end, he's going to give us some real encouragement and all that. So if you, as we're going through this, you may go, man, oh man, that's a lot of stuff. They, hold on, hold on. At the end, there's a, a good piece uh, in this. So um, if you begin, uh, look at uh, verse 17. He says, so I say this and I affirm in the Lord that you are, uh, you are to no longer walk just as the Gentiles also walk in the uh, futility of their minds, okay? And Joni told you last week the walk word here means like life's journey, right? Spiritual journey. It's the idea of you have a, a long process that you kind of walk through life. And he, he's affirming them in the Lord, okay? That, that you're, you're not a part of this stuff that I'm about to, to list for you. I want you to know that before I tell you that. And that's kind of the pastoral part of Paul. And by the way, I apologize for some of these. The slides had to kind of be reloaded at the last minute. So um, I, I, I'm bad with some of this stuff, but I'm not that bad, okay? There's <laughs> just a bunch of them in there. So now he, now he kind of goes into the list. Here's, here's what it means from before. Being darkened in their understanding, 
excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their hearts. Okay, they're ignorant because of the hardness of their hearts. And they, having become callous, have given themselves up to indecent behavior for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness, right? He's drawing a pretty ugly picture, and the word impurity here, we associate this with sexual sin, but actually the original word carries all kinds of different sorts of kind of abomination sorts of of sin. So this is the life before they became followers of Jesus. But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him just as the truth is in Jesus. And you remember I told you there were false teachers in Ephesus? This is a shot at them, at those Gnostics. Say Gnostics. Gnostics, okay? Uh, they, they, uh, they had a, a way of thinking that, uh, the, uh, of teaching Christianity that was different from what Paul taught them. And Paul was, and the reason for that is the Gnostics didn't believe that this world mattered. It just, it didn't matter. All that mattered was the, the metaphysical world and heaven. And Paul has been saying, no, this world matters. And so some Gnostics would say, this world doesn't matter, so you need to beat all the sin out of you. And they would literally beat themselves and do all kinds of things and really focused on purity. And then there was another group that said, well, if this world doesn't matter, then it doesn't matter what kind of sins we do. We can just do anything, you know, steal from people, sleep with other people's wives, all of that, that sort of thing. And Paul is saying, no, 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 that is not the gospel you received from me. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught through him just as truth is in Jesus. And this is the second part of that shot because the Gnostics said, we have special secret knowledge of God. And Paul is saying, the only truth is in Jesus. It's no secret. You can hear what the apostles say. So so he's pushing back as he gets through this. That in reference to your former way of life, you are to rid yourselves of the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. And this is a really uh, kind of fun and interesting uh, passage. Because the idea of rid yourself is, um, it's more than just, you know, set it down. It's the idea of discard or, or to, to throw away or to put it out of the house. It's the idea of clothing. You know, you take off clothing and the clothing is so bad. Maybe you... <laughs> I don't know if this has ever happened to you. It happened to me as a kid. Any of you ever had an unfortunate encounter with a skunk? You know? Let me tell you, you don't want that, right? Because you do not clean those clothes. You throw them away because it's just awful, right? And so that's what he's kind of talking. You get, get this completely out of the house. Throw it away. And this, this always makes me think of, of, of marriage. And hold on before you say anything about that. Because I have discovered, and I think a lot of men have discovered, that there is somewhere, somewhere either in the marriage license or the contract you signed ahead of time or in the wedding vows someplace. I haven't found it yet. I keep looking. But there is a clause that says your wife can throw away any of your clothes that she thinks are old and ugly. Uh-huh, yeah, it's in your marriage kind of things too, isn't it, right? That's, so, so I learned very on in my marriage that, that when my wife decided that something was no longer, no longer uh, acceptable, it just disappeared, you know? And she's like, I don't know what happened to it. <laughs> you know? It, it kind of just went away. And, and, that, and that's the way this is. So when he talks about this idea of, of being corrupted, that actually there carries the idea of, of actively decaying. And so he's saying this, this old life, this former way of life, um, actually causes you to decay as a person, you know? And I, I think of this when I think of, like, uh, vampire movies and, and, you know, that kind of thing. Have you ever watched one of those where, you know, they suck on the guy and all of a sudden his skin goes down to his skull, you know, and he's just a, there's nothing left, it's all, you know, 
Am I the only one that ever watches movies like that? You know, like, nope, never done that, nope, you know. <laughs> Some of you are looking at your parents going, no, I'm not going to tell them I did that. You know? but, but that's kind of the idea is it, it was corrupting you. This thing isn't just that it's on you and it looks bad, but it is actually that old way of life is destroying you. So he said, take that off because it's destroying the life uh, that, that we would have for you. So what I want you to get out of that is this. God is fully aware of the destructiveness of sin, Okay. The, the, the issue with sin is not that it offends God. The issue with sin is that it destroys you. And that, the destruction of God's people, that offends God. You get that? They understand the difference? I mean, Calvinists talk about God is offended at sin. We would say God is offended at the destructive nature of sin, what it does to his people, right? That, just like, you know, there's all kinds of stuff out there, but if it harms your children, that changes things for you, right? You know, it's like, ugh. Uh, and so that's what he's talking about here. God understands this. God cares. This is why God sent Jesus, because of the destructiveness of the sin, and he loves you too much to let that destroy you. Somebody say amen, because that's really good news, okay? Christ has come uh, to save you through all of this. So now, verse 23, and that you are to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. So here's the good news. Now he's turning the corner, right? You're, you're to be uh, renewed in your minds. And I, I love the word renewed. In the original language, it means make youthful again. I have found the fountain of youth. It's right there, you know, that God renews you. Wouldn't you love to have something that made you younger? <laughs> Hello, you guys listening to me? Because <laughs> I'm looking around and you're not young, many of you. And so you all should have said amen there. And, 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 and so he's saying that, that there's a sense in which what God wants to do in you through your minds is, is renew, give life again to what he intended you to be, that he can counter the effects of sin in your life, that he can counter the effects of those destructive things, that he can renew you and make you alive and, and well uh, again, okay? Um, and, and interestingly enough, in Greek, the tenses are different, but the word renewed uh, in the original language carries the idea of an ongoing action. So it's the idea of you have been renewed, you are being renewed, and you will continue to be renewed, Okay? God does it over and over and over, and it just goes on forever in that particular tense in Greek. And so when you feel like, oh, I've gone too far, and he's helped me out too many times, and I'm all of that, God's going, no, I'm still renewing you, just over and over and over and over again. Thanks be to our God, amen, for what he has done in us and through us, okay? And then, verse 24, and to put on the new self. Which, is in, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So I love this. So we just were told to take off the old decaying thing that destroys us, right? And now he's saying, put on the new self, the, the renewed self, the renewed and renewing self in your life, which, this is how cool this, this code is, is made in the likeness of God, has been created in, the right, in righteousness and holiness of life. Somebody say amen again. That's really good news. You are turning in your dirty rags that are destructive and you're putting on the new coat that, that is the new self that is made in the likeness of God and, and has righteousness and holiness uh, associated with all of that. What a wonderful thing that is. Um, and so it's kind of the opposite of the rid yourself to the put on the, the, new, uh, the new clean thing. Uh, and righteousness there is the idea of integrity and holiness uh, is, is not the normal word we use, typically used for holiness. This one actually means, uh, carries the idea of piety towards God. 
that there, there's something powerful. So religious practice, if you will, that these are a part of the keys of the, the renewing is integrity and, 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 and righteous practice uh, in all of this, okay? Um, and then uh, verse 25, therefore, uh, ridding yourselves of falsehood, okay, and that's that same word of putting it completely out. It's the exact same word. Ridding yourself. So, so now he's started into the list of things that even though you have been transformed, some of these things hang around afterwards. Have any of you noticed that when you became a follower of Jesus, you didn't suddenly become perfect? Okay, if you didn't notice that, ask your spouse. They'll clear this up for you, okay? You didn't become perfect when you became a follower of Jesus. There's still some things we have to work through, that constant trend. So he's kind of going into those. So you're not a part of that old practice, but here's some stuff after you became a follower of Jesus that may or may not be in your life. And everybody's a little different. Everybody has their own set of temptations. There are certain things that, that might be a temptation for you that's not a temptation at all for somebody else, and something that's a temptation for them that's not a temptation for you. So as we go through this list, you may find yourself somewhere and go, oh, that one's me. Let's not talk about it. Don't look around, because if you look around, people know that's my sin, you know, kind of a thing. It's not the way it works. So, therefore, ridding yourself of all falsehood, speak truth each of you to his neighbor, with his neighbor, because we are parts of one uh, another in there. And so, several uh, pieces in that, if we can get this to go there. Um, so, the ridding yourself we talked about, and falsehood there, um, this, is, this is an important one, just a distinction I want to make because of the culture we live in. Uh, we, we live in a culture where a lie is defined as saying something that's not factual. So if I say fact, 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 but I leave out the context that completely changes everything, in our society they can say, I didn't lie, even though they deliberately misled you, right? This is a favorite of politicians, right? They kind of leave out the context for the larger sort of thing. And this, I've used this illustration many times, but it's just really helpful for me. Uh, when I was in my last church, uh, I had a, an associate pastor uh, who was seen at a strip joint talking to a hooker, right? That sounds really bad. What they left out was they were on a mission trip to, on a, to go to a conference with a bunch of other men in the church, and they got lost in St. Louis. They took the wrong thing and ended up over in Illinois. There's blackness. They finally, the one little light thing, they went over there. It was a bar. They pulled into the bar, and there was a lady walking across the thing, and they said, please tell us how to get back to St. Louis, right? That's the context. That's a very different situation, right? So the first part was all facts. They just left out the larger context. And in Scripture, the idea of lying as, as not using facts isn't there. It's the idea of misleading. Do not deliberately mislead people, okay? But speak the truth. Who is truth? Jesus is truth, right? Each one of you with his neighbor, okay? And we, neighbor is everybody, right? All around us. Uh, because we are parts of one another. And the parts of one another is the idea that, that, that we are all related. We are all created in the image of God, right? So even if they're an unbeliever, you do not get to lie to them. You do not get to mislead them. You do not. So this is about how we treat one another. That Paul is coming back around to um, some of those things. Um, be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity in your life, okay? Um, so again, the idea is just because you're angry doesn't mean you sin. But when you're angry, you're still responsible for your actions and words. Got real quiet in here. Let me say this again. When you're angry, you are still responsible for your actions and your words. Okay, a little bit there. This is an important one in marriage. Because sometimes what I hear is people will say things that damage their marriage 
And they'll say, but I was so angry. And it's like, no, not an excuse. Okay? Be angry. It's okay to be angry. We get angry. But understand that your behavior is still being monitored by God. Amen? Amen. Okay, so that's just a little tough one there. Uh, do not let the sun go down on your anger. This is usually in the context of marriage, right? You know, but actually it's not. Actually, it means for all of our anger, right? In the context of marriage, it's just really obvious because, uh, you know, this probably never happened to you, but because it's never happened to you, let me just share this. If you are sleeping next to your spouse and they're angry and you're angry, it is extremely uncomfortable. Plus, it's hard to go to sleep worrying that they may take you out in the night, right? You know, it's like pretty vulnerable laying there next to them. So, um, so here's the deal. There, there's a time limit on your anger. The Bible says a time. You don't get to be angry for days and weeks and carry it on and on and on and on. Scripture says there's a place where you have to let go of it. This is where forgiveness comes in and say, okay, we're going we're gonna to move on. Now, let me just also add really quickly, in abusive situations, this is a little bit of a different kind of thing, right? We're talking about a normal, reasonably healthy marriage, normal, reasonably healthy relationships. If you are in an abusive relationship, you may need to get out, regardless of the anger. Amen? Get that? that so I, I don't want to confuse those two there. And sometimes preachers have done that, and it sounds like a woman's supposed to stay in, even though he, you, know, you get the idea, okay? Uh, and then it gives us why we need to let go of our anger. And do not give the devil an opportunity. And, and the idea in this is, is the idea of a beachhead, right? You remember D-Day when all the troops came in to invade Europe, you know, from Nazi Germany, and they'd get, they'd get the beachhead. And once they get the beachhead, then you can launch much more serious kind of operations. And, and, and Paul is saying to them that, that when you hold on to that anger, when there's no forgiveness in there, and it, and it turns bitter, that it gives the devil an opportunity to get a beachhead, a, a hold in your life, that then from there he can do all kinds of other things. And so not only does God not allow us to hold on to our anger, frankly, it's dangerous. It's dangerous to our spiritual life. It's dangerous to our emotional life and therefore becomes dangerous to our marriages and to our relationships with our children and all of those sorts of things. Over and over and over again, when I see brokenness, anger is very often a component of it. Even brokenness between parents and children. We had this argument, right? How many times have I heard that the reason for why we're not getting along is we had this argument. We were angry, you know, and we held on to it. And the devil got an opportunity, and now I don't have a relationship with my kid. Paul is saying, it doesn't need to be like that, but you're going to have to exercise uh, some, some discipline in that. Um, and, and then, um, the one who steals must no longer steal, but rather must labor, right? So again, understand in the first century, they did not have a social network. You couldn't get help from government, anything like that. So if you didn't have a job, you didn't eat. So people would steal. So, uh, but rather than rather, uh, he must labor, producing his own hand, with his own hand what is good, so he will have something to share with the one who has needs. Now, I just I just want to say this because sometimes people don't understand this. The Bible requires that we act responsibly in life. It does. We're required to act responsibly, right? So he says, get a job. You must you must labor. And in fact, the, the Greek word here carries the idea of like sweating profusely, right? It's like a hard job. Get a job that's difficult. Work hard is, would be kind of the modern translation uh, of that, that piece of it, okay? Um, a labor in, in what you do. And, and by the way, one of the implications of that is if they don't have the ability to get a job, we should probably help them figure that out, right? 
We should help them learn how to, to work and, and live. It's one of the reasons we're so into housing the homelessness. Because if, if you don't have a place to live, and you haven't taken a shower in a week, and you haven't slept well because you've got to guard your stuff because people are going to steal it, I don't care if you go into McDonald's or Walmart, you're not going to get a job smelling like that and looking like that. So one of the steps in housing the homeless is because it allows them to kind of get their feet back under them so that they can get a job. Do you see what I mean here about the kingdom of God and how, how that works? And then I, I love this part of it. It isn't enough that you, you just get a job to support yourself and, and your family. It goes on to stay. Uh, hands good so that he will have something to share with the one who has need. That's the generous heart of, of, of God. Not only get a job, but get a job and, and save some money up so that you can give to other people. One of the things I have noticed is some of the best people working with folks that are experiencing homelessness or in or very hard situations are people who have experienced it themselves because they understand. They understand how hard that is. And he's saying to them, and honestly, he's saying to all of us, and honestly, the vast majority of you are all middle-class people, and we can save some money. Give to make a difference to those who are in need. Amen? Amen. That's just a kingdom value uh, in, in all of this. And then verse 29, uh, let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth, but if there is any good word for edification according to the need of the moment, say that, so it will give grace to those who hear. Now, I'll tell you, when I was growing up, uh, when I read this verse was read and no unwholesome word, they always told me that was cursing and swearing. And then I went to seminary, and it's like, actually, that's not what it's talking about. I'm not for cursing and swearing. Don't misunderstand me. But that's actually not what this is talking about. The word for unwholesome talk there is, is the idea of rotten or putrefied or corrupt or, or worthless. Okay, And then it gives why that's there. Word come out of your mouth, but if there is any good word for edification. So these are opposites here. So unwholesome talk is talking about words that tear people down. Words that make things worse. Words we say in anger. Words that, 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 that harm one another, belittle other people. That sort of thing. Name people, classify people, all of that. And the opposite of that is, is that a good word for edification. A good word should come out of your mouth that makes it better that encourages them, that points them toward Jesus, that, that makes them go, yeah, God has got this. You get that? Does that make sense? You, you don't tear people down with your word. And I'm going to tell you, I'm preaching to me because I'm a words person. And when I get angry, words are how I defend myself. And so I have a long list. We talk about sins that we wouldn't want people to know about. Many of mine involve the use of words where I cut somebody down pretty hard. I was actually kind of gifted at this, and it's like, it's a bad thing. Instead, use words to edify people, to build them up, to point them towards Christ. And here's a really cool uh, moment. Say that, there's the instruction to do it, so that you will give grace to those who hear. This is so cool. When you use good words for edification, you are pouring grace into people's lives grace and mercy and God's presence. You can, you can literally be God speaking in, in, into, their, into their lives uh, in so many wonderful kinds uh, of ways you pour it into them. And so the truth of this scripture is this. Don't let words that hurt people come out of your mouth. Okay? Just real simple, black and white. I'm not particularly a black and white guy, but when it comes to this, and this maybe just because this is my, my area right here, right? You know, don't let words that hurt people come out of your mouth. I literally pray every single night, Lord, guard my mouth. 
May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart, because that's where you win the battle, be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. I, I just, that's just, you know, you all have your own stuff. I told you this one's mine. And so I'm just going to say it. This is just a rule. This is just a rule for our church. Amen. Actually, it's a rule for the kingdom of God. Don't let words that hurt people come out of your mouth in any way. Instead, pour grace into uh, people's lives so that it will edify and encourage and, and build uh, them up. Wait a minute. Ugh. This is not the technology Sunday, let me tell you. <laughs> okay. Um, so let me ask you this question. That's what I thought. I was um, and just think about this for a minute. Who poured grace into your life? Think about it. You got a name? Who poured grace into your life? I, I can give you several. John Fillmore was a man in my church when I was growing up. He just poured grace. I was this out of control, academically failing ADHD kid. And he just loved me and poured grace into my life and believed in me. He's still tender today. And took me and taught me stuff and did all of that. Another person that poured grace into my life was a guy by the name of Dr. Robert Woodruff. He was the superintendent of schools in Aberdeen, and I was the opposite of that. Again, academically failing, a mess, in trouble, all of those sorts of things, and he just loved on me. We went to church together, and he would hug me publicly, which I think was a way of kind of saying to everybody, this kid's my kid. I, lo I love this kid. And, you know, everyone's looking around, why are they hugging that kid? You know, I used to be hugging the academic star up there. You know, who poured grace into your life? You got a name? Just call it out if you got a name of somebody you think, man, that person poured grace into my life. Grandma, absolutely. Pardon? Eileen. Who else? Now, come on. I know a lot of people have poured grace in your life. You're not that good, okay, you know? Janice. Janice, yeah. Who's another one? Grandparents. Dad, Sunday school teacher. Yeah, people, poor grace. Be a people that pour grace into other people's lives, okay? Verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And when I was growing up, grieve the Holy Spirit was the unpardonable sin. And so I spent some of my years growing up worried that I had committed the unpardonable sin and that I was going to go to hell in all of that. And then I grew up and went to seminary. And that doesn't have anything to do with the unpardonable sin. Uh, in fact, if you care that you might have committed the unpardonable sin, you didn't commit the unpardonable sin, right? Because there's only one unpardonable sin, and that is to die without Christ. Everything else can be pardoned. So when it talks about grieve the Holy Spirit, it's actually talking about interfering with the work of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's work is to guide the church, amen? So people who are trying to pull the church off course and get us off our purpose and get us doing all kinds of things that are not what God is, that is grieving the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to get myself in trouble right now. But y'all got to love your pastor, amen? <laughs> There's giggles, but not much of the way, amens. You love your pastor, amen? Okay. Politics is not the work of the church. Amen? Okay. That pulls us off course from what God wants us to do. Be involved in politics. That, that's perfectly fine. Vote. Please vote, okay? But that is actually not the work of the church. We are not about transforming culture. We are about transforming people. Amen? Amen? Okay? So, uh, and then, I love this last part, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So here's the good news. When you, when you mess this up, 
God comes along and says, I have sealed you. I, I have put this, my seal on you. You belong to me, okay? You, you, you are mine. So here's what I know. God does not throw people away. Amen? Amen? He doesn't throw anybody away. In fact, God's a recycler. He just recycles people, right? You know, He brings them back and, and, and renews them and gives them that new life that makes them young again and, and uses them uh, for, for the kingdom. Uh, and, and, uh, and by the way, um, we talked about how uh, the renewal that you're going through is in a, and it means to be renewed over and over and over and over again, okay? The renewal that's being talked about here, let me see if I can back up a second. Um, you were sealed for the day, given grief of the Holy Spirit, sealed for the day of redemption. It, it actually carries the idea, the seal carries the idea of completed action. In the original Greek, it's the idea it happened in the past and it's completed action. They have a really fancy word for this called punctilier, say punctilier. Here, I'll go on. Y'all never use that again in my life. Hey, you're right. Unless you take Greek, you won't ever use that. But, but your redemption is ongoing, but your seal is complete. Your seal is complete. Amen. The devil can't get you. You belong uh, to God. In fact, the devil tries to convey us to this all the time. One of the things, I just I get a hold of this because when the devil's whispering bad stuff in your ear, the devil is called the father of lies. Say, father of lies. And he's a liar. You have been sealed. You belong to God. And then verse 31, all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and slander must be removed from you along with all malice. This is where Paul, I think, got to the end and was tired of it and just started listing all the things potentially that needed to get out of there. So like bitterness is, is resentment and unforgiveness. That's where bitterness comes from. Wrath is like, um, the word means flash. It's the idea of when you, a person who normally doesn't get angry, but they suddenly get angry, you know. Um, anger is actually a word that, that refers to the idea of the disposition of anger. We meet that person that's constantly angry. You know, that's where their weakness is. is. That's what anger means there. Clamor means loud quarreling, um, uh, which probably applies to on social media as well. Uh, slander is abusive uh, language, insults, damaging others' reputations. And the last one, malice. Malice is just a word that just means like everything else. <laughs> everything else is bad. You can see Paul just kind of go, let's just stop here. Malice. Put in all of this. Now let me ask you this. If you recognized yourself in some of that list that there's an area that you need to work on, I have good news. God is still working on you. You are not complete yet. You are not done. And yes, you're going to struggle. And yes, there will be hard times and all of that. And yes, you will fall back into it. But that was going on in the first century church. And, and Ephesus, no less, whose founding pastor was Paul and who the current pastor was Timothy, the protege of Paul. And they were struggling with stuff. And you all haven't got a chance because you're stuck with me and I'm not even close to their category, you know? It's, it, it's just a part of it. It's okay because I know for sure God isn't finished with you yet. Amen. In fact, when he gets finished with you, someone like me will be standing over your grave saying nice words about you. That's when you know when you're done and you're in heaven, and you're ready to, to go on with life. You are still in process. Give yourself some grace. Okay, look at the person next to you and say, give yourself some grace. Grace. And you may have to remind people about that. That's those good words that are edifying when you say to people, give yourself some grace. It's okay. It's okay. You don't have to be perfect, okay? You're still in process, uh, and God is still working uh, on, on you. And maybe some people have given you grace that you recognize that in, okay? 
But it also means, this section, uh, God is still rubbing off the rough edges of your life. Yeah. You know, it, it, the most beautiful things coming out, come out of rubbing off the rough edges, and we resist it so much, right? The most beautiful sorts of things. Any of you had a rock tumbler as a kid, you know, where you put them in there and you put the stuff in and you got nice, shiny, it knocked off all the, the rough edges. Or a diamond. Ladies, you got diamonds on your fingers? You know, if you ever watch that process, they take a rock that's really ugly and they start whacking stuff off. They, they start getting off the rough edges and at the end you have a diamond in all of that. If you're good at carving, people like to carve around here. What do they do? They cut off everything that doesn't look like what it is they're trying to, trying to make. You know, I don't know how they do that. That's witchcraft to me because I can't. I cut stuff up and it doesn't work at all. So. But God is, is working on you in the rough edges. And then actual change takes time and effort. Time and effort. If you want to become like Jesus, you're going to have to work at it. He's going to say some stuff to you. You need to stop that. And you go like, I can't stop that. He goes like, I'll help you. And there's a process. Or you need to start this. And it's time and effort in all that. Say time and effort, okay? Okay? And then uh, God desires to transform your very being in both an instant and a lifetime. God desires to transform your very being in an instant and a lifetime. If you get nothing else out of this, get this. God desires, let's read this together, okay? God desires. And here's the good news, the last verse. Be kind to one another, compassionate, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. He's been building up to this whole thing. You're getting rid of all of those other things, and now he kind of sums up. Be kind. The word there means fit for use, uh, manageable, pleasant. Uh, it's the opposite of harsh and sharp and, and bitter. Be kind to one another. Compassion is the idea of, of tenderhearted. It's the idea of caring for one another uh, in, in Christ Jesus. Forgiving, and here's what I love about the forgiving one. The root word for forgiving is the same root word for grace. Remember when he said you could pour grace into one another? You forgive and you pour grace into one another. You forgive the people around you and Christ forgives you. All of this is because he forgave us. So let me say this. How we treat people matters to God. Amen. Matters to him how we do that. He's watching. I was thinking about how to kind of sum this all up and, and I have spent the last two weeks with, uh, with three kids under the age of two and a half, Right? which is a ton of fun as a grandparent. You know, again, I, I managed to make it two and a half weeks with a bunch of kids, and I didn't change a single diaper. Praise be to God. But I did observe some things, because they're, they call the terrible twos the terrible twos for a reason, because <laughs> they're challenging all the time, and they have trouble listening. And, and my, uh, my oldest grandson, Brody, uh, is built kind of like his dad. Some of you have met his dad. His dad is six foot three, wide shoulders. He played defensive end in college. He's a big dude. Uh, and, and Brody is a big dude. He's like at the 98th percentile on, on everything, you know. And he means that he's a gentle giant. He means he's very, in terms of that, but his, his younger sister is only nine months old. And so when she's sitting someplace and he goes to kiss her, he like bowls her over, right? You know, or he goes to pat her, but he's actually smacking her, right? You know, or he goes to hold her hand, but he squeezes too tight. And, and my daughter must say a thousand times a day, gentle, Brody, gentle. Gentle, Brody, gentle. 
And I wonder if that isn't in some ways what this is all about, that we would be a gentle with people, gentle people with us. God, um, next one. Uh, God has been gentle with us and calls us to be gentle with others. If I could just sum that all up, I would just say, gentle church, gentle with those people that fail and struggle and it's hard for them and they don't got it together as much as you got it together. Would you be gentle with them? This is so countercultural. We're in a world that is, it's whatever, that stuff that's going on out there on both sides, I don't care about who's doing, it's the opposite of gentle. And in the midst of that, God says, but my people are a gentle people. Let us be gentle in the world in which we live. Let us bless others rather than curse one another. Uh, Kramer, if you, you'd come. Uh, we're going to sing a, a closing song that, that I, I love. It's called The Blessing. And you, we've sang it before. And it's all about a, a blessing from, um, uh, from the Bible uh, found over in Numbers. Uh, and and I, I want you to maybe just think about somebody. Maybe put an arm around your spouse and, and sing this to them, okay? You know, if you don't sing very well, that's all right. Your spouse already knows. She's heard you in the shower, okay? Um, but, but maybe there's a, a child around you or someone you'd just put your hand on your kids and, and sing this to them as the blessing, as we pronounce God's blessing upon people. So that's what Paul was talking about. You guys are all fighting and you're doing all this stuff and you're struggling with all this and you're missing the goodness of God. And so let's sing together. Would you... You stand as we sing and we bless one another together in his name.